All right, Job chapter 32, verse 1. You can go there. We talked about a couple of Job's friends last week. We are talking about uh, Zophar right now. We're going to be very brief about this, very brief, because we're going to get to the meat of the whole book, which is not only the suffering and, and the details of Job and his life and, and him seeing God through the suffering and God revealing himself so well through that, but even more, most importantly, is how God reveals himself through the 60 questions he asks Job. And I'm going to show you some things that you may not have realized, you may have, I don't know, but I never realized the full import of these 60 questions until I studied them and used other sources that really have parsed these questions. This is about how God uses the physical universe He created, how He created it, and the depth and the breadth of all these wonderful things. And He's asking Job, if you know so much about me, then you must know exactly how I did everything. You must have been here during creation. That's the bottom line. Now, you'll also see when we get to these questions that Job is a, is a type of Israel in the fact that he's self-righteous in many ways. And so are his friends, by the way. He's also superstitious in many ways, and well, not in many ways, but a few ways, and not in bad ways, like I told you. But in his relationship to God, he was very legalistic and without really consulting God about what he wanted. Israel's like that. And that's why they're getting punished. Not only that, they've actually been doing things that were really superstitious that are wrong, and that's the real reason why they're getting punished. But all of that to say this, he's also like you and I can be as well. We have to be very careful about who we ascribe God to be. We have to be very careful because we all have our worldview and we fit God into that worldview. What we're trying to do in this class, because I'm still learning the value of this, is to have my worldview more finely honed into God's point of view his heart and his mind and his character. And we're going to see him reveal more of this in these pointed questions to Job. And by the way, God is not going to point these questions to Job like, hey, Job, come here. I want to tell you some things about me. He's not like that. So he's, he's very pointed. He's angry. He's annoyed. And so we'll see. But that's the main part. But let's talk about Zophar for a second. Now the third, after we've re reviewed the first couple of friends here, the third friend, Zophar, of the four men that are with Job in the suffering, speaks from the standpoint of trying to soothe Job with stating that there will always be reconciliation to God in due time, and that wh wherever God is and wherever He is and whatever He is in, there is hope. That's true, right? And we know that, especially for ourselves, obviously. However, through these dealings, Job still remains inconsolable as he sits in his most painful affliction. None of what his friends are saying is of help to him. So whether the friends are, are saying things that are not quite 100% about God, and, or whether they're saying things, you know, they're peppered with some things that are accurate, Job is in such pain. And in his own self-righteousness, he's not having it all right now. Okay? So finally, a fourth man who has been listening quietly. Remember I told you he was the youngest man there. There were the three friends and this man. His name is Elihu. And he's been listening quietly as, at, out of respect as the younger across you know, all of these men who are his senior. And then he steps into the mix and starts to speak. Elihu, being a younger man of a different point of view, I mean, I don't know if being younger has anything to do with it. It may. But he has a different point of view. And he takes someone of a different tack and he chides Job for being self-righteous. These men really didn't do that. And he says, uh, stating that Job needs to turn his focus to God as the source and conclusion of all things rather than on himself and his situation and his suffering through it. Now, that's very good advice. I think that's the best advice any of the friends really gave him. You see, it's okay for us and those friends to tell Job, you know, God is sovereign and all of this will work out fine. And, and that's not necessarily wrong, right? 
Some of them were wrong in saying, you know, you sinned and you've paying for it. Well, we know that's not the case because it's been revealed in Scripture. The point is, and like, again, just dovetailing to what I said a few times, and I had to learn sometimes the hard way. Be a friend before you be a counselor. Because your opinion, whether right or wrong, may not matter so much when all you need is to be comforting that person. Don't slap them with the Bible. If their doctrine is wrong and they're suffering, you can gently guide them, but they may not want to hear you. So it's not your job to convince anybody. I had to learn that. I'm still learning it. And you know, I'll tell you the honest truth. I have found in my life that the more I have learned to stop trying to convince people, although it does sound like I'm trying to convince people, when I'm speaking to the choir here, preaching to the choir, I'm trying to show you what we know. Right? What we all know, what's documented, what I can show you. And I want you to study on your own should you choose to do that. Okay? That's different. It's just like anybody else when you're out in the street and, and there's people who have no clue of who God is. You can't talk to them like this. I know I've tried. <laughs> but I can tell you, when I've learned to put my counseling into the context of a relationship, God has given me so many more opportunities. I just had one the other night, my friend Brian. This man I've known for quite a number of years now. He and I have had discussions before very briefly about this God stuff, right? The truth stuff. He's not hearing it, but he's a really nice guy, a really nice man. So it just so happened, we haven't seen each other, we haven't talked in a while. He lives in Rhode Island. He wanted to come out and have dinner with me. And so Thursday, I worked off site and I had dinner with him. And I, I'm, I asked for an opportunity. I said, God, just give me an opportunity to talk with him, to pick up, you know, where we left off, to, to show him some things about you. But... I don't want to press because sometimes you know, people don't want to talk about God. Well, not only did he give me the opportunity, it's what he wanted to talk about. <laughs> it was, I, was, I was flabbergasted and I got home like 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night because we were sitting down, we closed down the restaurant, the legal seafood in, in uh, Framingham. We closed it down because we had our conversation spill outside. Now, he's not really convinced, but he already was armed with things. He was talking to me about the Crusades and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but I can, I can show you that, you know, all this history. And we talked about Israel and, and his feelings about Israel. I didn't bring any of this stuff up. He did. It was a great conversation. Maybe God will give me the opportunity again. But he's given me more opportunities because I haven't been like Job's friends. And I would just caution you, please don't. Please don't. It's always in the context of a relationship. So sometimes it's required. Like in a husband and wife relationship, if my wife has to tell me, you know, Mike, you really need to do this or do that, or think, I have to listen to that because it's in the relationship. Likewise, she does. And boy, she listens to it. And she's still here. It's our anniversary this week. Through 24 years, she's been putting up with me. You only have to put up with me once a week. That's right. So, you know, congratulate her. And, and give her a little sympathy, too, while you're at it. <laughs> So you think you got it bad. You only have to see me once in a while here. So you get my drift. Let's say Job chapter 32 and verse 1. Let's see what Elihu has to say to Job. Job chapter 32 and verse 1. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job. And yet they condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he, but when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzzite, said, I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring, or respectful basically, right? Not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. By the way, we know that's not necessarily the case. 
But it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. How true, Elihu. Hey, that rhymes. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who, are, who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I, too, will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning. While you were searching for words, I gave you my full attention. But not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Now, a most interesting comment Elihu makes about all of this, and I'm going to read this next section from the Amplified Version, Job 37 and verse 21. But you can follow along. This is a very interesting comment that he makes about all of this. That he, you see, we just set the context of his point of view now. So again, I'm going to read this from the Amplified Version. And now, men cannot look upon the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Golden brightness and splendor come out of the north. If men can scarcely look upon it, how much less upon the terrible splendor and majesty of God himself. Well, we would know that. Anybody who could see God would actually die. Never mind trying to sense his splendor just by this link that we have, the spiritual link that we have through the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power, and to justice and plentiful righteousness he does no violence. He will disregard no right. Men, therefore, reverently fear him. He regards and respects not any who are wise in their own heart, in their own understanding and conceit. Words of wisdom indeed from a younger man. What Elihu is saying here is that if anyone assumes that their wisdom is higher than God's wisdom, this is surely something that God not only will respect, but he will also affront you with. He will. He will. And this is well stated by God himself. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read. You stay where you are, please. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. And you know this scripture well. And he says here, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than yours. Makes sense, right? So Elihu talked about the weather and meteorology and all of these things as well. I told you that the 60 questions really dovetail into the physical universe, and most, most specifically, how the earth and the universe were formed and maintained by God. And he's showing his glory through this. This is really where he goes. Because Paul also mentioned something about this too in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Clearly seen. Since the beginning. By the way, we've shown that in this class, right? Through the constellations, through the creation, how God not only made them, but He planned them to show His plan of salvation all the time. Have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. We talked about that last week too, didn't we? No one has an excuse. And God will take these people who have their own wisdom to make excuses, like the people who are evolutionists and so forth. You know who I'm talking about. The people who use science, which not the way, by the way now, and I've, I've said this, we talked about this this week. Science, unfortunately for them, who try to use science to disprove the existence of God, now they're saying, well, there must be room for a creator because not necessarily God, right? They didn't say that years ago. It was always evolution. Now, they at least have to admit because the science proves. As science brings us closer to the definite interface between the physical universe and the eternity in, with, in which it's caps encapsulated, through quantum physics, with quantum physics, we are getting closer and closer and closer to where the four-dimensional time space we live in stops 
and eternity begins. You understand what I'm saying? They can divide subatomic particles called quarks and besons. These are subatomic, smaller, and these are within the nucleus. Okay, these are smaller than the nucleus of an atom, than, than the electron of an atom, which is very small, right? They're finding that they can split, they can try to split these things, and what actually happens is they can even do this with an electron. This is when they first found it out. That lose location, that they seem to exist everywhere. And they found out that they can actually tickle electrons and electrons many, 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 many miles of distances away, whatever the distance are, can actually vibrate in sympathy. So they're finding out where the physical universe is encapsulated into eternity and they're getting so close that they can actually get physical matter to actually act as if it's everywhere. This is the truth, folks. This is science. So I go harken back to the movie. Uh, with Jack Black in it. I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Yeah, believe in science because it proves the existence of God and that's what he's saying here. And the smarter we get, the more we, can, we cannot disprove the single creator. And he's not an alien, which Sir Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA, I told you, believed that aliens put us here because he refuses to believe in God. So you ask a very intelligent man like that, me being not that intelligent, where did the aliens come from? And where did they come from? And their fathers, and their fathers. It's a never-ending Pandora's box. There has to be a beginning. So that's what Ellie Hughes basically saying here. And that's what we just said Paul said, too. Okay, also, I'm going to read it to you. We're going to have to stop soon, sorry. <laughs> From Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. I read that to you last week. The point is that all of these men make it, uh, make it clear that even nature itself undeniably declares God. And God, and God will show in these 60 questions, summing it up, that He's angry. Or let's put it this way, very annoyed at Job and his friends. And that's why he says, Job, stand up. Stand up, Job. Like, like I'd be talking to maybe one of my sons. Come over here. Stand over here. You think you know me that well? Do you think you, you, you are so smart that you can figure me out? Well, if you can answer some of these, even one, Job, one of these questions. Okay, and we're going to see, because there's a lot of study that went into these questions. There's a lot more here. Let's go to Job 38 and verse 1. Job 38 and verse 1. I've got to make the most of these five minutes. Now we're, <laughs> we're going to get into the... You know, it's, you know, it would be great if it wasn't for these thinking current events. <laughs> you know, there's so much happening all the time. Like, you know, it's like, come on, God, give me a break so I can study history here, you know. This is truly, we're getting into the meat of, of the book of Job here. We're just starting. Job 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, or the whirlwind, really, which is what it is. By the way, this whirlwind isn't just a metaphor. This is not just a metaphor. Because I'm also going to read you, just stay where you are, Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. When Ezekiel, and they're in the captivity, and Ezekiel is by the river Kibar. Listen. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, by the river Kibar. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And he says, Then I looked and beheld a whirlwind, a whirlwind, was coming out of the north. A great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself in brightness and was all around it and radiating out of its mist like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. And then later on he talks about how this thing came down and put itself on the ground in front of him. And it was God's portable throne that I call it. So the point is, is that 
there's something going on here, and we're going to talk about also Jonah's experience when he was in this great fish. We're going to talk about, because in these 60 questions, God asked Job, have you ever been down to the depths, the bottom of the ocean? Have you ever been there, Job? Because if you have, then you have a, a right to talk about me. But have you ever been down there? And, and then what he says, and we'll see this next week, is have you ever been below the ocean's floor, Job? Have you ever been in Sheol? or what they call in the New Testament, Hades. Now, I showed you through other documents and other places, other things that we understand about interdimensionality, that there is more than just these four dimensions. And I'm going to show you this next week, but jo Jonah was not in just a great fish. By the way, people call it a whale. It wasn't a whale. It says a great fish because that was lack of a better term. Like here, we see God's portable throne room as called a whirlwind because it causes such upheaval when it enters this physical time space. It causes a lot of things that we would consider miraculous upheaval. A fire that folds in upon itself when there's nothing actually burning and all of these things that we saw from Moses all the way through. When God interlopes into this physical reality of ours, he can do anything he wants because he's not bound by the laws of physics. Makes sense. So when he interlopes, like we, saw, we talked about the chariots of fire, that angels can use interdimensional vehicles to travel. And this is not science fiction, folks. This is what scripture talks about. When Jonah was in this fish, he was not just brought down into the water just to stay inside of a fish until he repented. That's a little bit too easy. Where he was brought down, and it says it in Scripture, was to Sheol. He was brought into the area of the dead. Abraham's bosom is on one side, and on the, across the great chasm where they can see each other are the dead that will not be resurrected to life, but resurrected to judgment. And when Jesus died, by the way, how long was Jonah in that fish? And how long was Jesus in the depths and he went down, while, Joe, while his body, Jesus' body was still in that tomb, he went down to Sheol to announce his victory to those that were going to perish. He cleaned out Abraham's bosom and brought them all to heaven. And now, then his body was resurrected after that. What it looks like happened to Jonah was he went down into the depths, but he was in this, this great device, so he didn't have to be out of his physical body so he could go through this interdimensional change into this area in the earth which is there. And there are angels locked up there too. These people who are going to be resurrected on the great white throne judgment are still there, but not their physical bodies because a physical body cannot inherit the things of heaven. They also cannot inherit the things of outside of this four-dimensional time space. This is what we're talking about here, folks. Reality, physical reality, which science can prove. So we're going to get into this next week because when we get into these questions, I want you to think about the interdimensionality and God's command over these four dimensions. Because remember, God said we as humans are made of the dust of the ground. He's not. The angels are not. Our spirits, which is the breath of man, that God breathes life into the physical body, but then he puts the breath of the spirit of man into the physical body. So we know we're separate from our, our minds, right? So that's where the spirit goes, where the body cannot, until there's a resurrection of a new body that is compatible with living in eternity and the other nine or so different dimensions that are, are above ours. Have a great week, and we'll get into the 60 questions next week. Have a great week.